COVID-19 Research Roundtables, a series of panel discussions hosted by Queen's University Belfast's Professor Emma Flynn. Panel 1. Looking out for Big Brother. Hello, and welcome to this panel discussion from Queen's University Belfast on the impact of COVID-19. My name is Professor Emma Flynn and I am the Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research and Enterprise at Queen's. In this programme, recorded under lockdown conditions, we'll be looking out for Big Brother. That is, we'll be asking if, in the context of this global pandemic, sharing our personal data is now a societal duty or an intrusion too far. Shortly, I will be joined by a panel of experts in digital security and in ethical concerns raised in the digital age. But first, I am delighted to welcome Professor Frank Key of Queen's University to discuss the vital importance of information to public health. Frank, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, I direct the Centre for Public Health in Queen's University and I hold a joint appointment with the Public Health Agency in Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm involved in a number of um, national uh, consortia looking at the impact of the pandemic on the health of the population across the UK. Uh, and I work closely with my colleagues in the Public Health Agency who are uh, on behalf of the population of Northern Ireland in, in the trenches uh, trying to deal with the current situation. Brilliant. That's very helpful. It must be very difficult times for the moment. Um, what we're going to be doing is thinking about um, what we're giving up with our data and, and what the use is of data. Can you give us an overview of how the track and trace system works? Uh, well, within Northern Ireland at the moment, we have what is pretty much bread and butter public health uh, track and trace. Because before the lockdown, the public health agency had a track and trace system in place. And that merely required the public health body, when it was notified of a laboratory confirmed case of COVID, that we got in touch with that person and we uh, asked about the potential close contacts of the case up until a period 48 hours before that case became symptomatic. And usually we had very good cooperation with uh, the person that we were speaking to, and they would freely give us the names uh, and, where possible, the addresses and telephone numbers of their close contacts. So it was not particularly problematic to do that before the lockdown. But of course, now we're talking about uh, upscaling that to a much greater magnitude now that we're dealing with uh, many, many more cases. Although, thankfully, the incidence of the infection is, is dropping, uh, but we're scaling that up, both in terms of the person-to-person -person human service, where the, uh, a person will be on the phone, and uh, although it's not quite ready for rolling out in Northern Ireland, we will have a, a digital or app-based contact tracing service uh, within the next few weeks. Have we ever faced anything like this before? Uh, no, not. I have been in a public health practitioner for 35 years and uh, I was hoping to get to retirement without one of these balloons going up. 
but no, not in my uh, memory. I mean, there have been pandemics. Everybody knows about the 1819 pand- flu pandemic uh, that killed many more people than during the First World War. And there were other flu pandemics uh, in the past. And kind of the, p- the pandemic that never quite <laughs> hit us as bad as we thought, the uh, uh, the swine flu in 2009, we, we we did make pretty severe or pretty comprehensive plans about what we were going to do if it had really become bad a, a, a decade ago, uh, but not to this scale, certainly not to this scale. And of course, we're dealing with a, a different virus, which has uh, more significant health consequences than, than the flu and those previous uh, flu pandemics. Uh, uh, that is, accepting the 1918 one. So is the fact that we have seen such strong um, technical advances over the last few decades going to sit as an, at an advantage in how we deal with this particular pandemic? That's a question with many different types of answer, I guess, because um, we, we are told that the countries who have leveraged technology and digital solutions uh, have been more effective, um, the likes of South Korea, uh, Singapore and Taiwan, very quickly mobilized uh, comprehensive digital solutions for doing track and trace. um, And we're told that they were very effective. And in each case, from what I've read, uh, they had good um, digital governance around those uh, technologies that were implemented and that privacy was protected. Of course, uh, there are many consequences of the pandemic that we have to investigate, which requires um, doing things with data than, than, than that what we hadn't done in the past, connecting data sets to look at the impact of the pandemic, for example. Uh, but there's a good... Uh, framework of uh, digital governance uh, governing what, what uh, everything that we do. But of course we have challenges with this and there are people who are reticent to use some of the technologies that we have that may assist us with the track and trace. So I mean can you outline some of those challenges and the perspectives that we have from individuals who, uh, who may be reticent in giving some of their personal information away? Well, uh, there is both in the UK nationally in London and also in the Department of Health in Northern Ireland. There actually is an ethical governance committee uh, set up on foot of the pandemic to advise uh, on what are appropriate actions. And indeed, um, ethical guidance has been published on the use of digital solutions for track and trace. For example, some core principles have been put down on paper. uh, And uh, if I might rehearse a few of those core principles, uh, is it necessary? Is it proportionate? Is it timely and accurate? Will it only be temporary for a a limited purpose or limited timescale? Is it voluntary? Uh, does it require consent? Are the data kept private and an- anonymity preserved? Can users uh, remove themselves and have the data erased? Uh, is the purpose clear? Uh, is it only for prevention? Uh, is it used for compliance? 
what I mean by that, like quarantine compliance. Uh, and is it going to generate any inequities uh, within the population? Is it equally accessible? And will there be a decommissioning process? Uh, so those guidelines are now written down and understood by public health bodies across Europe. So there is a framework to guide to guide action. Okay. And um, is that guy, are there, is that framework comprehensive enough in your opinion, or are there things that should still be considered? Oh no, I think the, the sorts of things that I've mentioned in the ethical framework are very comprehensive. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that those in Stormont who are commissioning a digital track and trace system uh, will be guided by those principles um, and they may well take it to that ethics board that they convened uh, uh, for advice. Uh, so I, I'm confident that um, we're operating within an ethical framework. So if you had any advice that you would like to give to people who are contemplating whether or not they wish to upload an app which would be track and trace, what would, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that if it has the uh, government um, sanction, uh, that it will be guided by the framework I've just described, and that it is entirely voluntary. It is entirely voluntary. But I think that uh, when people are making this decision, they need to understand why things like this are happening. And it is to protect us all. It is to protect the individual and to protect the community. And so they can help uh, public health generally by being part of the solution. But of course, they don't have to do it by an app. Uh, and I, I don't have the data this morning to say that it will be so many times more effective if it's done by an app, because I have every confidence in the public health agency that uh, when they are fully uh, manpowered uh, to do the manual tracing, that that will be effective as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we finish today? Well, I mean, in terms of the uh, use of individual data, whether it's based on a digital app or indeed, you have to bear in mind that whenever people uh, use the NHS, the, the default is that they know their data is going to be used for planning their own individual care. But to, to plan the response to a pandemic, we need to use the data in ways that are not just related to the, that person's individual care. So we do uh, what's called pseudonymized record linkage. So their data will be record linked across a number of data sets within health, and they will only be processed for legal purposes within a safe setting. So if I was wearing my researcher hat, wanting to find out the consequences of the pandemic on different aspects of public health. I wouldn't be able to extract the data onto my machine. It would be analyzed in the Honest Broker Service, which is called a safe setting. That's a technical term. And the pandemic has made NHS Digital, NHSX, and all of the NHSs in the four home uh, countries, it has made each of the bodies become much more agile in setting up um, uh, a more uh, a more well-equipped uh, infrastructure around the safe settings. So a lot of record linkage will be happening, which is covered by 
the GDPR regulations and fully endorsed by the Information Commissioner. But it's based on pseudonymization, which means that as a researcher, I can't extract the data. I can only use a linked data set within a, a safe setting and the outputs will be screened so that there's no possibility of disclosure of any individual. And I will not have the key that links an individual's data in that data set and that data set. I will never have that key. It will only be the safe setting that will have the key. So there's lots of protections for individual data. data. Brilliant. That was exceptionally interesting. Very, very helpful. So thank you very, very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm delighted now to be joined by the expert panel um, who are going to be continuing discussion about uh, Watch Out for Big Brother, whether or not sharing of our personal data is a societal duty or whether or not it's an intrusion too far. So I'd like to welcome um, the three panel members. We have Jane Brady, who has been appointed this year as Belfast Digital and Innovation Commissioner. It says in my notes here, Jane, that you were chair of the Institute for Engineering and Technology in Northern Ireland from 2013 to 2014, and that you hold a number of advisory and board roles with organisations focused on economic and social development. You also hold an honorary degree from Queen's um, and you're also an alumni from, of Queen's. So we're delight, delighted to have you joining us here today. We've also got Dr. Stephen Farrell, who, who's a research fellow in Connect and the Computer Science and Statistics Department at Trinity College Dublin. Um, you teach and research on security and also in my notes it says delay disruption tolerant networking, which I think you might have to explain what that is because I'm not sure that I know. Um, and that you've been involved in security issues in industry since the mid-1980s, and you're co-founder of the company Tolerant Network Limited. So welcome, thank you very much for giving your time up today. And I'd also like to introduce Professor Myra O'Neill, who's a Regis Chair at Queen's. uh, She's Director of our Global Research Institute, Electronics, Communication and Information Technology. And you've received numerous uh, awards, including the Royal Academy of Engineering Silver Medal in 2014 and the British Female Inventor of the Year in 2007. So thank you very much today and I'm delighted to see you all. So I suppose I'd like to start off with Maya and say that we've already heard from Professor Key about how important data collection is in responding to this public health crisis. But gathering information, particularly when some of it's sensitive like health, is not without, uh, without its risks. So can you give us some reflections on where we are at the moment with this within the pandemic? Yeah, so certainly, yes, Um, as Frank will have detailed, you know, data is very valuable to society. Um, It's it's also attractive, though, to criminals. So with the significant increase that we were seeing in devices that can be connected to the Internet, we're now in a position where we have vast amounts of data being collected. But that also means that attackers um, can gain access to to data much more easily through our devices. And we're also, in this particular pandemic, we're also seeing fraudsters taking advantage of the current situation. So we've already seen the use of things like um, fake text messages purporting to be from either the NHS or the government seeking bank details and personal information for things like alleged uh, relief payments and so on. So there are very, very real concerns around, you know, how do we protect our personal data 
Um, and then I suppose if we take into account then, you know, the proposed track and tracing programs that are in place and the proposed apps, um, we have concerns then about how the personal data that is being collected through those programs is going to be used. So when you think of situations, for example, the, the Cambridge Analytica revelations where it was uncovered that that company had actually used personal data of millions of Facebook users without their knowledge, you can under certainly understand that there is a real risk to personal data uh, and people do have very real concerns. No, that was very helpful. So, Jane, I mean, we, we've got a wealth of opportunities where we are now. So if we bear in mind some of the issues that Maya's raised about the concerns that we've got to, uh, to, to think about and to overcome, there are huge opportunities at the moment within the digital space. So within your work and, and uh, your new role, can you see those? Um, absolutely. Um, Emma, just coming back to Maya's points as well, we've seen the rapid advancement of innovation, particularly digital innovation and also life science innovation in the next number of months. But particularly in the data domain, um, we've seen an unprecedented focus on the power of data to resolve all our national emergencies, all for the greater good. We've seen really large increase in wide-scale data processing, both in the private sectors, um, but also in the public sectors in the NHS and the provisions they're putting in place. And some of those are, I guess, in special category data, such as health data, and they're across very short timescales. And I guess in terms of disruption, you know, when we're at this speed of rapid innovation, there is real opportunities to, to, to innovate rapidly, but it needs to be done within the mindset of security and, and uh, data protection. Um, I guess some examples we all know is the way the NHS is using data. They've pr- produced solutions to map their assets, such as beds and healthcare. And we also have fund location tracking data, which has been used by the UK government. Um, I think some of the other aspects that, that the law police force have done is use, use of drones, which wasn't actually... Uh, um, very positively received by some of the, the public sector in terms of kind of encroaching in their personal data and, and implement, implementing um, governance aspects as well. Um, I think when you look internationally, there's been a variety of different approaches. South Korea and Singapore also kind of leading on the Track Together app and the proximity use with the use of Bluetooth technologies. And I know we're now going into um, uh, kind of looking towards that quarantine period. We've just introduced that in the UK and Poland have introduced quarantine processes where you send an app which has geolocated selfies. So kind of mashing together all kind of commonly used technologies, but for very specific innovative uh, processes. I think some of you know other regimes and, and governments as well have, have shown more kind of encroachment into the access of data. Um, Israel um, has introduced um, an emergency law which allows security services to access mobile phone data in terms of location data in order to curb the crisis. So we've seen a a variety of different implementations uh, throughout globally to to address the challenge and all for the greater good. and Maya, Maya knows it more than anyone else, probably, uh, certainly uh, in, in, in kind of the cyberspace. But actually, when you do so many kind of different operations and access to data with your new repositories of data challenge, it creates really big opportunities for misuse 
of that data in terms of cyber attack and phishing. So along with rapid innovations and public good offerings as part of that, we need to be mindful of the risks and vulnerabilities that brings out, especially you know when perhaps kind of processes are being accelerated, uh, which is providing kind of vulnerabilities within that system. So I think that's a, a balance to the operations for good to protect us, but also we need to put systems in place to be mindful of, of how we govern against other vulnerabilities coming into our system. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, I, I'd like to pass over to you now. So first of all, can you explain to me what a delay disruption tolerant networking is? <laughs> it's and really nothing also, to do I'd with like this current pandemic. Uh, uh, essentially, it's a style of networking that's used for environments that are very challenging. So typically like networking in deep space between space probes and, and back down to Earth. Uh, if you're doing networking in the Arctic, underwater, places like that. So it's kind of like doing, doing computer networking in very weird places. Okay, which, uh, which, which would, there must be many of them, even though we might not feel that we see them all the time. There must be many different challenging environments. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we've, we, we did some work in the past, which was really good fun, and, uh, with uh, reindeer herders up in the Arctic in the summer. And uh, you know, we had things like the round trip time for packets from there back to Trinity College was 15 hours. So if you think your uploads are slow, then try to do it there. <laughs> so um, I'd like to turn now to your experience within industry and, and for you to potentially reflect on, from an industrial perspective, what the opportunities are within this particular space. Sure. I mean, I guess I mean, there, are, there are some to talk about there, but I guess I'd also like to echo the points about security and privacy. I mean, I think there are significant challenges here, particularly with the kind of contact tracing where... There's the perceived good that it might be able to do if it works, which is an unknown yet. So we should be treating these things as an experiment, I think. Um, and then it, there's that perceived good. And then on the other side, there's also issues, for example, with typical implementations of mobile apps and phones. We'll be doing a lot of telemetry. They'll be doing a lot of measurement for deployment purposes. And in some of the cases that we've looked at, uh, tests we've made, versions of these apps are, for example, calling home to Microsoft in, in the United States every time the app is opened. And that's a typical thing app developers will do uh, when they're they're trying to measure how widespread adoption of their app is. But it may not be a suitable thing to do if you're pr- promoting an app as a, a as something that helps during the pandemic for a nation state, for example. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that uh, have yet to be kind of figured out properly in in terms of how well these things can work for us. Um, but to come back to your question, I guess. The, I guess one thing we have seen, I think probably the most interesting thing we've seen in, in terms of the kind of industrial reaction to this, uh, that I'm aware of at least, is the kind of video conferencing type technologies we're using now and how those have essentially been uh, extremely, <laughs> uh, their, their volumes have, have increased hugely, the number of people using them have increased hugely. And I think that's probably the biggest success of the internet essentially in, in this pandemic. If this had happened 10 years ago, uh, before the technology that we're using now, which is a thing called WebRTC. If, if this t- pandemic had happened before that worked in browsers, then the, the pandemic would have been much worse, I think. So I think that's actually the most interesting uh, industrial, I think, uh, impact of this pandemic, at least as far as my expertise goes. So if we open it up, I mean, we've heard a lot about the the need and the opportunities, and then we've also thought about the challenges. I mean, how do we balance these moving forward? How do we give one precedence over the other? So the idea, we we have all had to move our 
work life now onto the computer. We are doing all of our meetings virtually. In those spaces, we'll be discussing lots of things that are confidential, lots of things that may be business critical that we don't want to share with a wider audience. So, I mean, how do we make sure that we are balancing the transparency that we would like to give to some of the activities that we're doing and the societal benefit that we will make with things like track and trace with our need to be able to have some confidentiality and some trust within the organisations that we are working within. Is there somebody who'd like to, to speak to that first of all? So I think in the case of, let's, if you think of these kind of track and tracing applications that people are being asked to install on their mobile phones, the interesting question there really is how much, if they work, how much will they improve uh, what's going on? Um, so, for example, if you know it, myself and my wife, we're, we're, we're in close contact all the time. And if the phone tells us that, that's not going to be useful information. Uh, I think there's still a bit of work to be done to find the balance uh, there between what is it that these apps can do and how does that benefit um, the, the, the actual contact tracing that has to happen afterwards. Uh, and so I think the right way to think about it for now, for at least for those kind of applications, is it's an experiment. Think about it like a like a drug trial or something like this. Uh, it may work. If it works, it might be very helpful. It may not work. If it you know it may work only slightly, and we don't know the answers yet. So I think in terms of balances, it's important to to not over egg the thing and not not over promote these ideas of, of using technology to solve problems, because some of them sometimes and in this case we don't know yet if it's going to help solve the problem. Jane, is there anything that you would like to add to this? Yes, um, I would. I think the point you made earlier, Emma, really about trust. And I think trust is a really key perspective on all things when we're being asked to divulge information that we could work in currently. And I guess we need to understand what the purpose is and the timeliness of the intervention. So the Corona virus act came in in march and it has a certain you know, perspectives uh, and, and i think it's a two-year program but to, to be reviewed uh in, in monthly basis but actually the extensive use to which we use our curse person data to fight the, the COVID, and and how rapidly the swathes of information are going to be used in terms of meeting that emergency um but i guess there's a speed and there's a desire to contribute to the crisis but it doesn't necessarily justify uh data privacy concerns going out of the, out of the window um, so we need to ensure that we're still bound to those actions and be timely and measured in those, as well as dealing with this crisis, make sure that we're, we're you know, providing those data protection limits as well. So for me, what's really interesting to see is what happens after these initiatives and the data that's been collected. You know, once COVID-19 is under control and we're getting through that process, seeing what actions are taken as part of that to make sure that that trust is maintained. Um, and of course, there's regulatory actions in response to these organisations um, and people have been really willing to share their information. Um, but if that's done for commercial gain, I think that will be a breach of the trust that's been put in place. You know, we're all in this together in order to get health outcomes for all. But if there's a breach of that in terms of using that for commercial advantage, um, I think that that will be, uh, I guess, a, a really you know, a big issue in terms of, of the mode of operation we're in at the moment. And I guess we're hoping that the situation is temporary and we'll, we'll remove out of this. So, uh, you know, we, in the, I think the new normal probably isn't one that we have this level of overzealous data collection that we are kind of put back in control of that data sense. So whilst people at this stage are willing to, to maybe move the bar in terms of 
accessing their data. I think that's really, you know, getting that under control once we're through that crisis and putting that confidence in place uh, to make sure that we maintain that trusted relationship between our data and, and, uh, and you know, the users of this in terms of emergency situations. So, so Maya, is there anything that you would like to add to this? So yes, following on from what Jane has just mentioned, I, I sit on the UK's AI Council um, and over the past two months, we've been helping to inform the NHS X team and Matt Hancock's team on their communications relating to their sort of contact tracing app and relaying concerns around the, you know security, privacy, trust and indeed interoperability is, is also a major issue. And there is this real balance between allaying privacy concerns, but also rapidly responding to the current pandemic to allow society return to return to some some sort of resemblance of normality. So using the app, you know, to collect data, you know, it will affect individual privacy. And the question really is, what's justifiable? And um, is it necessary? What is it proportional? And actually, whether people are willing to accept it, because if people think their data won't be secure or don't trust it, then they actually may avoid participating and then that kind of defeats the purpose. And then as Jane alluded to as well, we really need to think of the longer term implications of this situation. So if the government loses public trust in the data analytics processes they're they're rapidly putting in place now in response to COVID, they actually risk the public losing faith in, in future analytics and AI systems more generally which would be a real shame given the very, very many uh, significant benefits they have to offer. Yeah, I think, it, it, I, I think Jane and Maya make some, some great points um, that I totally agree with. Uh, I, I, the only thing I guess I could add to that is, uh, I think that shows up a need for, which is a slightly peculiar need in, in for these applications and these systems that are being deployed, is that we need to plan right now for how to undeploy them, for how to get them, uh, you know, yeah. to, to decommission them uh, in, a, in a way that makes sense. And, and that's part of convincing people uh, to trust us to use them. Um, so th- there's a lot of ways in which these are kind of peculiar applications because normally if you put out a piece of software or you build a system, you're thinking, you're planning it for a long term. But in this case, it's it's crucially important, I think, that we also plan it for the short term and plan how to get rid of it later. Um, ancillary things like also open sourcing all the code that most many of the governments around the world that are promoting these kind of systems have have done. But in parts, you know, sometimes you, you'd see various cases where the client application that runs on people's mobiles might be open sourced, but the back end systems are not. Um, so I think there's, there's there's areas for improvement there, and it will improve as time goes on, hopefully. Um, but that kind of openness is also important. Actually, just to Stephen's point, I mean, we're, because we're in a, such a rapid period of innovation, there will be unintended consequences, which we don't even know. You know, the, the NHS and the government aren't deploying these technologies in-house. They're working with partners with different kind of code sources and other aspects. They're creating kind of new ways of doing things. So as well as the phishing kind of opportunities and the cyber attacks, there are other unintended unintended consequences that will come with us so i think it's as we move out of this we need to be mindful as well to all the points previously made of how we you know how we get back to a different state but also how we we kind of explore what actually could be the risks and vulnerabilities in in this new thing that we have built as part of that so i think that's uh it's a really interesting point that that Stephen and Maya made 
It sounds to me like a lot of the issues that we're facing are the similar sorts of issues whenever we are having to take responsible, responsible use of data, isn't it? It's when you're collecting data for studies, you have to have a plan not only for how you collect the data, but also what you do with the data in the end. And when it, come, when it comes to its, the end of its life and how then it is destroyed, if it is then destroyed. So uh, there are kind of similar questions and similar protocols that we can use from very responsible users that are already exists we just have to make sure that we are reflecting on that and the whole life journey of this particular piece of technology that we might uh, that we might see that we're having to use um, so if we were going to give advice to people now a kind of take home message uh, what would you say to people about where we are within this space what things would you ask them to watch out for and, and what things would you ask them to be trusting around so well I can I can speak to the you know the the track and trace app for example in the UK um you know it, it's been it's been used as part of a larger the track and trace program um you know Stephen mentioned this they are starting to take concerns into account things like looking out for the open sourcing of code is important um they're taking on a board feedback on security so they've sort of updated um security of the app to, to kind of um reflect that um, but we also kind of, I suppose, need to watch out for some of the things that um, Jane has mentioned in terms of some of the legal protections or governance arrangements that need to be put in place around access to the data, what it's been used for and what will happen when, when this is all over. Um, will it be sort of decommissioned? Um, and I think, you know, in terms of you know, having complete trust in in a system that we want to use so that we can all sort of get back to some sense of normal. Um, you know, if we watch out for some of these things and actually then we can confidently look to use the technology because it has sort of taken account of some of our of the or all of the privacy concerns um that and that's reflected in what they do. So I think things like that are really important to watch out for. And then we can see the best use and, and get maximum benefit from technologies. Jane, is there anything that you would add to that? Um, I guess I would say, I think it was Matt Hancock tweeted that actually GDPR still applies or whatever the words in terms of coronavirus. So we haven't thrown all the rules out the window with this. It is still, we know GDPR in the European context still applies and those rules are still there. We have a Coronavirus Act, which is delivered for two years, a six monthly intervention to see it's still in line with that. Um, large provisions, actually people like Maya scrutinising all the actions, you know, to make sure the data is anonymised. So there is a lot of provision and guidance regarding that i think you know so i would have confidence in this period that we're at that the force will be for good i think it's in the once we're out of that very structured process in terms of delivering those outcomes it's how we come out of it and and how we retract that data and how we make sure that we put you know that having having got over the pandemic we don't actually provide other issues which actually breach that trust because we know the journey for ai is one that we need to travel on. So we need to bring all parties with us. Um, so I think it's very mindful in this space, but just that next phase in the journey uh, that, that we, we ensure that we don't let governance barriers drop because it will be a different dynamic for each stage of this, this, this moving us out of, out of the, um, the peak. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to pass the final word to you. Is there anything that you would like to add to this? 
Sure, I mean, I, I, I guess I'd agree with everything that's just been said. Uh, but also, so I guess speaking more to people who are, you know, let's say in policymakers or people, uh, medics and so on, who are thinking of deploying these systems, again, I'd really emphasize that for a lot of this stuff like Bluetooth-based tracing, we need to consider it as an experiment for now. It hasn't been proven. It may turn out to be very useful. It might not work sufficiently well. We need to be aware of that and position it correctly. For, for end, end users and people, I would say, again, it's a little hard to kind of give that message to people and say, maybe you should install this and maybe it will work or not. Uh, but, I, you know, I think that's, you know, I think it, it may well work. It's, 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 again, worthwhile being part of the experiment. And I, and I think if, you know, if you can encourage users to end users and just members of the public to kind of jump on board and say, OK, I know this is basically part of the experiment and I'm helping in that way. So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I think the message that I'm taking uh, home from this is that we need to be trusting but mindful, that we need to be trusting in that, you know, we need to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, but we need to be mindful of how we are providing information and what will then happen to that information and and to just be aware of some of the questions that we've been discussing today and to be, and to be making sure that we are... Um, that we are secure in some of the provisions and some of the oversight that's been given at the, at a higher level about track and tracing. So that's been exceptionally helpful, incredibly informative. And I'd like to thank you all very much today for your insightful comments. And also I'd like to thank everybody who has watched and listened with us today. And I'm sure that they'll be able to take some very useful information away from, from the discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. For more on this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast Shaping a Better World podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or for subtitled video versions, visit go.qub.ac.uk slash roundtables.